0: Hello, bonjour. Hi, folks. Welcome back to The interview Stage, where, contrary to appearances, all of you are on the stage. I'm Lehman Pascal, just a skeptical member of the audience, looking forward to seeing you interview the author on our new author series. If you recall, you previously spoke to Robert Ellis about his book on archetypes, and now he's back with a middle way philosophy volume called Absolutization, in which he examines the roots dangers and consequences of the absolutistic tendency of human cognition and what we both can and apparently must do about it
1: hi robert hello bu- hello lemon hi <laughs> uh
0: first of all where do people get their hands on this book
1: uh well the the best way to or rather, the cheapest way to acquire it is from the publisher's website so the publisher is equinox so if you search Equinox, you'll find their websites. And if you order the book directly from them, you can get a 25% discount if you put in the code religion uh, when you check out. Um, Beautiful. But otherwise, it's available from the normal, you know, big online bookshops and so on.
0: The uh, There's a forward in this volume to the whole middleway series by Ian McGilchrist, who is pleased, as I am, that your notion of the Middle Way is is not a compromise between existing polarities, but a like a departure from the conventional assumptions underlying the way we hold and define and interact with polarities. Mm-hmm. And the specter of McGilchrist raises for me the following question, which is how much of the problem of absolutization do you feel is directly connected to the exaggerated cultural dominance of left brain information processing?
1: Um, well, that's that's a whole helpful way of understanding it. So I think you can just you can understand absolutization from a variety of different angles. You can approach it from a variety of different angles, and uh, brain lateralization is one of them. Uh, so it's a very illuminating one. So yeah, I mean McGillquist has had a, a huge influence on me, as you can probably tell. And um although there isn't a separate section, as it were, in the book on the left hemisphere, it actually runs through quite a few of the other approaches particularly embodiment so yeah it's it's um the way in which the the left hemisphere tends to think it has the whole story is is basically that's a good way of understanding absolutization that uh, uh, so you can see it as a a brain function uh, the way in which we sort of isolate ourselves from incoming new incoming information uh, but then you can also approach it psychologically philosophically through systems and, and so on so uh, yeah it's, it's it's one one way of approaching it
0: what uh, you know i imagine in feeling motivated to write a book on this subject which is pretty abstract in a lot of ways you must feel like it's a big problem uh, you know what are the consequences of absolutization on the world stage why don't we just say Oh, it's fine. People absolutize things sometimes, some people more than others. That's just their style. Get over it. Why is it anyone's business? Why do you feel like it's a big problem we need to address?
1: Uh, well, I think it's at the roots of all our problems, really. So if you understand absolutization, as something that happens in the process of judgment. It restricts the range of what we consider. Uh, so at each moment, when we've got a new situation, new decision to make or even a new judgment about what is the case in the world around us um the the facts as it were where we are we have to make a judgment and if we're only thinking in terms of certain dominant um things we believe to be true believe to be the whole story or the unthinkable negation of that uh, if those are the only terms we're thinking in uh then we we limit us and we constantly limit ourselves we cease to be adaptable to to new situations uh we block out other people and information from other people so there's a there's a whole uh communicative aspect to that and we also block out the imagination we block out understanding from our past we block out the environment yeah, so, so a whole load of of important things um require us to respond to new information basically and, and absolutization stops us from doing that um so i see it as the problem the underlying problem which underlies lots of other problems um so so you, you can you know there's talk of the the meta crisis or whatever the cri- the crisis of humanity and i think that's that's it's a way of understanding what c- continues to create the crisis of humanity
0: So you think the meta-crisis is is downstream from the
1: problem of absolutization? Uh, Yeah, you could put it that way. Yeah, Um, because uh, obviously the idea of the meta-crisis is is, is, is a very big empirical claim, isn't it? There's there's this big problem we're all facing. But if you break that down more manageably, it's a whole series of little decisions, little judgments that we all make at each moment. So I like to approach that practically. Think about, you know, how we, how we um, operating each moment, which will make a difference. And if we can identify what we might be doing wrong at each moment, then we get some much clearer idea of, of, of the direction of avoiding absolutization.
0: Um, for me, there's a kind of ambiguity around whether this is a discussion of switching thought strategies or whether it's a discussion about developmental complexity, right? Because one way to talk about stages of human cognitive development is to say, well, there's an appropriate level that maybe we hope children go through where they're kind of absolutistic, dogmatic, and totalizing in their thinking. Uh, and it takes however long it takes to go through that stage properly. Now, the other way to think about it is absolutization and non-absolutization are just choices everybody has at every moment. So, you know, do you lean more in one way or the other? How do you see those relating to each other?
1: Uh, well, secondly, certainly leaning towards the second one in, the, in that I see it as something that happens at, at each moment. But obviously the stages we go through um, make a difference and they form a background to, to the judgments we have to make. So, um, I mean, it changes the, the nature of the absolutizing we, we might be engaged in. Obviously, yeah, as you, as you suggest, um, it's harder to avoid absolutization when we're we're younger because we have less experience and less range of options to think about. But we are also open in in various ways when we're younger, in ways we might not be when we're older. Um, so it's it's more complex than that. You know, so uh, it's more that um, yeah, we we uh, change the sort of. Baseline, uh, or we we change the uh, the kind of options that are open to us that we might limit through absolutization, or we might expand to 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 consider. And I suppose um, if you think in terms of Robert Keegan's stages, which is certainly my my preferred developmental stage model, then um, you, you can um, see the oper- the, the uh, movement forward into the the third stage and kind of interpersonal stage as opening up in particular respects uh overcoming particular uh absolutizing limitations which is really the, the moving into the interpersonal stage somewhere in adolescence usually is, is about opening up to other people and becoming aware of other people and but then if you when you move into the more of the the ideological stage the fourth stage then you're opening up to ideas and the idea of the universality of ideas. So in each uh, case, you might get stuck at the previous stage and fail to open yourself sufficiently to to the new kinds of um, stimuli which are coming in, which perhaps you're encountering because of your sociocultural environment um, uh, and which um, might enable you to open up new options and, and try out new options. And then finally of course so you could we could still get stuck even at the kind of stage four uh ideological stage even though we've got sort of uh universalized ideas about uh, values we follow for example because we think that's the whole story we could still get stuck with that so so hence the need for for a fifth stage that's you know the what um keegan calls the inter-individual state which is much harder to uh, to define, um, but is um, much more uh, pragmatic, and much more open to drawing on different ideological sources. Yeah, yeah, so, so there exactly. might
0: be a way in which the problem of absolutization sort of drives ongoing stage development, like it's present at each of the stages, and it's something to be overcome at each of those phases.
1: Yes, exactly, um, and I think there's uh, that's where the middle way comes in as as a response avoidance of absolutization and, and um i see the middle way in t- sort of macro and micro terms so so you can think of the inter-individual stages much more middle way than any of the other ones but on the other hand uh in more micro terms as you're moving through each of the stages there's still uh the opening of new options there's still a balancing to be to be made because you're avoiding getting stuck either in the assumptions of the previous stage or prematurely moving into the the um the new stage when actually your your embodied situation isn't quite ready for it so yeah you can't jump straight to the full stage when you're five years old or whatever so so you've yeah there's there's this constant interaction between our embodied situation and the um the judgments we have to make and whether we absolutize those judgments at each stage or whether we Uh, open up new options
0: i feel like most people are aware that there's a problem of other people being unnecessarily absolutistic uh but we often don't inspect the sheer depth and subtlety and diversity of the ways in which we are succumbing to the process and that makes me curious um, where you have struggled with this tendency the most in your own life and mind and judgment. Where have you had the most difficulty sidestepping absolutization?
1: Well, I guess I've I've gone through different phases. Obviously, like most people, in those phases you could see in terms of getting stuck at particular points and then wriggling free, as it were, probably the most recent, tendency i would say well the last 20 years say since i've been working on way philosophy yeah so so just over 20 years ago i completed a phd in philosophy and that had a certain effect on me <laughs> and in the the philosophical training i went through um created certain sorts of expectations and particularly i suppose uh a kind of philosophical rigidity in a sense that, that i found that um i think it, a lot of this is to do with audiences the audiences we have in our heads the, the kind of super ego that we carry around with us um, so uh the way i i was often getting stuck i think it, particularly in the earlier years when i was trying to develop and communicate middle way philosophy was that i did it in a very philosophical way which didn't take into account the audience and where they were coming from a lot of the time. Uh, So I had the wrong audience in my head as it were, which was kind of stuck in my head. So that, yeah, that's something I've definitely had to, to work with uh, as I've gone on. I wouldn't say I'm totally free of it now, but um, I'm I'm still trying to kind of um, substantially address that super ego audience if you like so to produce something that's philosophically adequate but at the same time to make it meaningful and and helpful to all range of other people um so that's a difficult balancing act
0: some years ago i set out set out to um uh... Define the metaphysical assumptions underlying post metaphysical ontology, and I ended up with something I called the metaphysics of adjacency, which uh, places flexible interstitial proximity between perspectives as the primary position, and kind of denies ontological validity to either zero or hundred percent. But treats proximity and approximation, sort of's and not quite's a- as the underlying ontological condition. Which is a great idea. But that framing is partly an extension of my own emotional temperaments, which is an extension of my childhood situation and even of my physiology. And that's very interesting for me to think about. And you know, very famously, people like Wilhelm Reich initiated this lineage of body-oriented psychotherapy, suggesting that the ability to take flexible, non-dogmatic thinking seriously depends in many cases on the absence of fixation and rigidity and armoring in the organism. So, you know, one of the interesting questions here, I think, for you is whether trans-absolutistic consciousness can be disseminated, sort of top-down as an idea system, as a strategy, or whether it requires people who are already capable of the physical and emotional mobility necessary to make sense of these things and implement them.
1: I don't think there's a single sort of fixed answer to that. It's, it's, it's much more that we work at each stage that we find ourselves at. And, and that, uh, the embodied aspects of that is part of the practice. But So so is the intellectual side. So the, the two are constantly interacting with each other. Yeah, so, so I, I could be uh, stuck in a particular set of assumptions which are uh, closely associated with my body. In, in one way or another, or um, I think there's there's a lot of uh, involved here of attitudes towards the body as well. So so stuff in the absolutization book about that how we can we can get stuck with um, well just just for example with Platonic ideas about the mind and the, the separation of the mind, which can then lead to rationalism of various kinds, or, or um, you know just getting stuck with with some kind of disembodied set of assumptions so yeah there's a constant interplay between how we actually are as embodied people and and the whatever kind of intellectual process we're we're going through and i don't see those as as totally separate yeah so so i mean that what you said obviously may relate to also to the argument in my book about metaphysics so so i want to avoid metaphysics um in the sense of any metaphysical claim so that's obviously a difference between us in that i avoid using that language in a positive way uh i wouldn't talk about the metaphysics of the middle way for example how, how would just- you define metaphysics uh metaphysics is is uh the attempt to uh describe how things are uh, in in some ultimate or real sense beyond experience. So so, um, there's this constant gap between whatever that may be real out there, as it were, and our experience. So that's why I think we need to come to terms with uh, not being able to make metaphysical descriptions, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that, I've tried to to make um, well quite systematic in in the way of approach middle-way philosophy and and the the next book I've got coming out which is the five principles of Middleway philosophy goes into um, the different ways we can practice uh, so as to uh, systematically uh, as it were uh, recognise that that we we can't make these we can't justify these final statements as it were to any kind. And that, that constantly interacts with just with everyday stuff, you know, the, the metaphysical claims are are not just matter for philosophy, they're also assumptions we might make about other people in everyday life. For example, you know, the, that that um that guy's a jerk to use American language <laughs> um, is is uh you know that that's that's pinning an absolute state on that on that person, absolute set of assumptions on that person. Um
0: I'm curious whether whether there's a difference in the way we're thinking or just in the way we're languaging, because everything you described, like the gap between totalizing descriptions and actual experience, what I call the metaphysics of adjacency is I'm like, that's the metaphysical claim is that that's the reality. So it's it's like, to me, everything you just said, I'm like, yeah, that describes the metaphysics I'm talking about. <laughs> But the mm. metaphysics of post metaphysics—it's inherently ambiguous. Like, is it a way of saying we're not metaphysical, or is it a way of saying not metaphysical has an assumed metaphysics in it? Uh, and I'm not sure whether that's just a a difference of description or whether there's some underlying distinction. But it might take us, you know, years to figure that out.
1: <laughs> well, I think one tends to one tends to end up going around in circles if one tries to just get subtler and subtler metaphysical descriptions of how we're not metaphysical. I mean, so I like to approach this from a practical point of view, which is just to say, well, how do we need to judge things? How do we need to change how we judge things? And uh, if we we just give up making metaphysical claims of all kinds and think in terms of provisional claims instead, we can start, if we're practicing so as to actually (laughs) think provisionally and, and make judgments provisionally. Uh, then we can start doing what matters in terms of the avoidance of metaphysics um so uh yeah sometimes this kind of supposedly anti-metaphysical metaphysics just goes around in circles and is just you know, a waste of time other times it can actually be a cloak for more metaphysics and more rigidity uh, so it's difficult to tell and i wouldn't want to sort of try and pin anybody down who I don't know very well anyway, uh, as to which they're doing. But, but it's, it just seems to me much more useful to, yeah. to stick to judgment as an approach and, and what we're doing at this point.
0: Mm, I guess what seems to me to be useful is to make the, uh, the thought system echo the pragmatism, right? So that you build the metaphysical use, you presume that the metaphysical entities themselves are provisionalities. Uh, so that there's no alternative to being provisional and pragmatic, right? Because if I go well, it's just practical. Then there's always this space for somebody to fill in these absolute metaphysics. But if I go no, no, the only absolute metaphysics is that we're dealing with the provisional. That's what the metaphysics is made out of. So I mean, I, again, it's like you were saying we could go in endless circles around this. <laughs> so maybe I'll segue to a different yeah. question.
1: <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't describe it in that way because I'd I'd see it phenomenologically. So so. You know, my experience is that we get stuck in metaphysical right. claims and we can experience the effects of that, which is what I've tried to describe in the Absolutization book. Um, right. So it's then not. The, then the, I'm the not question trying would be, to.
0: What's, the, uh, what's right. the status of that experience? What's the, right? It's my experience that it's phenomenological. I'm like, well, isn't that kind of a metaphysical claim? And then what kind of metaphysics is based around a claim like that? As opposed to based around the kind of claim that that sets itself apart from.
1: Well, that's where I think we need to go into the uh, the features of provisional claims. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which is incrementality. Uh, so, so you're making a, a claim which is justified to a degree, and you can then talk in terms of the probability of it being correct based on the weight of experience or the weight of other kinds of justification for for your claims. So a provisional claim can can still be justified to a high degree. It can be ninety nine point nine 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 percent justified in some cases, but but that's different from an absolute certainty. Um, yeah. So so I, I would see metaphysical claims as claims certainties of, of some kind. Uh, so it's just a, it's a right. helpful discipline, I think, just to to yeah. avoid them both both explicitly and implicitly. Do you think that? Um... Like I want to say, are you
0: certain about that? (laughs) No. Like, like, what's the status of incrementalism? Because I—that's how I tend to lean, and in my actual behavior, uh, I hold Mm. it all very loosely. But when I look at the claim, Mm. I think, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable asserting incrementalism, for example, as the more certain
1: fact of reality. Uh, uh, It's—I would distinguish that kind of certainty from confidence. Yes, yeah, so so we feel confident in a position like that because of our the weight of our experience which is supporting it. and, and that's all come, digs back down to embodiment, yeah that, that um, the reason I feel confident is because I've gone through this process many times and it's consistent with other things I do in my life and, and so on. So I feel very confident in the middle way as a whole approach, but it's still not a metaphysics. Because it's it's not an absolute position; it's it's a position which is based on a degree of justification. Um, and, and so you can also think in terms of bottom up and top down strategies. So so you can build up towards a universal general position through a whole pile of, of experiences and probabilities and so on. And uh, the fact that you've got an aspiration to, to universality is is. Uh, an important part of that a positive part of that but that's not the same as a top-down approach where you claim to have the truth universal truth and then you deduce other things from that and that's very symptomatic of how absolutized philosophies tend to work in that top-down way I mentioned
0: Dr Reich and body therapy a few questions ago and that's part of the western tradition of psychotherapy in which there's a focus on Uh, liberating supposedly natural functions that are suppressed by neurotic social tendencies. But there's this other approach to mental health, which suggests that instead of having a hidden nature, we're simply ongoing creations, that we become what we neurochemically practice. We get better at having the feelings that we have more often. So from that angle, um, what's the difference in outcomes between a person who regularly energizes their nervous system toward absolutes, and a person who regularly energizes their nervous system toward a more flexible situation, maybe one that takes a metacognitive perspective on the absolutizing tendency? How do those start to show up differently for people?
1: So are you talking about people's experience, or are you thinking in terms of wider outcomes of what they do?
0: Uh, Both. Like, how does it look for them, but also how does it look when you're looking at them?
1: Okay, well, <laughs> um, I would say in terms of how how it feels for us, um, uh, what we probably experience on average is increasingly integrated uh, ways of operating. So, so the the link between um, conflict and absolutization is one of the things I I discuss in the book, and that's where the uh, the psychoanalytic uh, tradition can interact with um, the philosophical and and you scientific and other other approaches so uh yeah i mean uh, briefly kind of you know, um absolutization produces conflict between because both sides think they've got a whole story so there's no basis for reaching any common position through through dialogue um and you can you can see that conflict operating in the interpersonal level but you can also see it within the individual and, you know so we we stop talking to different bits of ourselves because we think we've got the whole story at a particular point and we may deny other bits of ourselves that emerge at other points. Um, So um, the overcoming of that, the the integrative process is likely to make us feel better because uh, it liberates energy. So so energy is locked into those conflicts which can then uh, be used much more effectively uh, if we are not locked into those conflicts and that's where practice of meditation, for example, can can help to reduce absolutization. So so that's how we, how I me feel. but <clears throat> in terms of trying to take a, a broader view of what the effects are, well, uh, I would perhaps talk about adaptivity uh, or adaptiveness or the, um, I think there were, there were two different uh, words, both of which are acceptable. <laughs> Um, so adaptiveness <laughs> or adaptability but but um we we are better able to adapt to new conditions uh if we are not absolutizing because uh, we consider options which may better match what the conditions are like yeah so that so we are able to um respond to new conditions more effectively if we if we're not absolutizing whereas if we are absolutizing there's, there's also this relationship with feedback loops from, from systems theory. So so we tend to get into reinforcing feedback loops where we have the same expectations, which produce the same sorts of actions again and again, and we interpret the world around us in in the terms of those absolutizations. Um, so we remain locked in those, those ways of operating and unable to adapt to a new situation. Uh, so we, we may get, for example, locked into old beliefs Um, so maybe the world is changing maybe climate's changing for example but we can't uh, come to terms with the fact that it's changing
0: the first one sounds kind of universal and the second one sounds kind of historical to me which is to say it it seems like it's always a good idea (laughs) for your nervous system to uh hold things more lightly, create less conflict, be more capable of generating integrative solutions, liberate more energy, experience less stress, <laughs> get along with people better. The other one seems like, like the adaptability-iveness uh, is specific to circumstances in a way. Because if if human life is the same for long periods of time as it sometimes has been historically, then being really locked in is not much of a detriment. You know, like this is just how things are. But if you exist in a time like this time where things are changing very fast within generations, the ability to adapt becomes a much more salient survival mechanism than when things are not changing very fast. Do you see this as as particularly
1: necessary now,
0: even though obviously it's somewhat necessary at all times?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah is particularly necessary now because of the situation humanity is in but uh you know at any time um there's the probability that things will change and and we uh we we lock ourselves into not facing change by by adopting absolute positions and of course when we get into the sort of confirmation bias feedback loop we we can go on for centuries with the same assumptions and just assume that's the way things are but but um then something new happens, and, and they, they turn out not to be. Uh, so, you know, even the experiences you've had all your life are just reflective of the conditions that you happen to have encountered, and, and they're not reflective of the all the conditions you might you might <laughs> face. Um, and I find the the work of Nas, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is very interesting from that point of view. I you think know, he, he helps just confront us with the um, the, the new uh, conditions
0: that might suddenly erupt. Yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of at least his books um, mm-hmm. because like a lot of areas of science, statistics and information science, physics and computation and nonlinearity, they kind of reveal the informational opacity and the uh, unpredictability and inherent irreducibility of the universe's patterns. We're never going to be able to get on top of that with our models. And it kind of initiates a, a new stoic wisdom where we have to live by practices and heuristics that prepare us for shocks and surprises and errors. So one of the things that struck me reading the book was how, the, how absolutization seems to set us up psychologically and socially to be fragile. It sets us up to fail in a world where we cannot predict things accurately. And the world is always a situation where we cannot necessarily predict things accurately.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean that's the that fragility also tends to make us flip. Uh so, so that's one of the things I particularly want to note about absolutization is that we can remain absolutizing in a sense, but but when the tension gets so great that we can no longer hold that absolute position positively, uh, the the sort of immediate defensive mechanism is to flip to the opposite view. Uh, so then we carry on absolutizing, but we've we suddenly moved uh usually to a, to a, the other group, to the other camp, which maintains the opposite point of view, like a like a dramatic religious conversion, like St. Paul's, for example, was this classic example. Well, I think a lot um, of people
0: see it in their uh intimate relational life of like flipping between love and hatred, or when a relationship breaks up, suddenly I never loved you, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, But like you're saying, with the same kind of absolutistic flavor.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. Uh,
0: there, there's an interesting question, though, because it takes a lot of processing power to prepare ourselves for adaptation and surprise. Like the, uh, the existence of confirmation bias is not necessarily dumb. Right, because we can't expend too much energy. We need an efficient process for simplifying things and looking for information that reinforces our beliefs is a way of streamlining our brain so we don't get overloaded. Uh, Mm -hmm. But at some point, there's diminishing returns on that where we start to be maladaptive to the world. What's the sweet spot? How do we get the best of both worlds? Because we can't be constantly. Ah, uh, facing disbelief and surprise and complexity, but also we can't get locked down and believe in things too much. Where's the where's the sweet spot? What's the middle way there, Robert?
1: <laughs> well, that's where the middle way comes in. Yeah, that, that that's and that's where I'd want to emphasise the um, the point of judgment, so that so the point of judgment takes into account where we've got to while embodied state is. Uh, which would include our psychological limitations so far, and and it might include, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, stages of development, you know, it would include things like the the stage of development we may have reached, um, which will limit the responses we may be capable of, but we can still judge better or worse in those circumstances, and we we can be locked into an absolutization, or we can judge more provisionally. So uh, I, w- I would judge the, the sweet spot in terms of the well finding the middle way at the point we, we are, um, rather than there being some absolute definition of it for every situation.
0: So speaking of the middle way, which is historically associated with Nagarjuna, one of the things I notice is there's a tendency of people to Read Nagarjuna or other great saints, and go. Oh, he said everything is empty, or this proves that thoughts have no ability to describe reality, or things like that, which become very kind of dogmatic assertions. Everything is emptiness. Now, what what's your sense of how people who propose themselves as advocates of middle ways typically go astray? What kinds of mistakes do other types of middle way advocates make, in your opinion?
1: Uh, well, the the classic one is is interpreting the middle way in terms of the historical culture of a particular time or uh, the of a tradition at a particular point. So, in terms of the the Buddhist middle way generally, so not not just Nagarjuna but but um, throughout the Buddhist tradition, there was an understanding of the middle way in terms of the middle way between eternalism and nihilism uh, specifically which i think was was operative at the time of the buddha certainly that the the um the extremes or the absolutizations he tended to meet were those of um well they were illustrated by the the two sides in his early life yeah so so the um the ascetics and his teachers during his early life on the one hand taking this uh this view that there was um operating in the universe which determined a kind of cosmic justice which meant you should work in particular ways which would get you certain rewards so so on the one hand you've got this that kind of absolutization that kind of metaphysics on the other you've got the the palace with its very conventional set of views and its set of assumptions about which uh, yeah, well, they they had their own absolutizations in the sense of assuming that that was the whole story. That this socially prescribed situation was the, was the right one, but it didn't have this. It was it was relativist in the sense that it only appealed to that circumstance. It didn't think it, in terms of a wider universalization. So, so yeah, okay. In that in those circumstances, those are the two extremes that the Buddha had to navigate between in a lot of his judgments but they really don't match up to all the kinds of judgments we have to make today. Um, and um, So there's, there's a very wide range of sets of opposed assumptions, which we might need to navigate between when we're trying to find the middle way in, in modern life in, in other times, other cultures and, and so on. So I think you, one needs to interpret the Buddhist middle way more widely as the general middle way um, in a a less traditional cultural specific way as um, the navigation between any two opposed set of absolutes basically uh, so obviously that's where absolutization the book absolutization can't be well what do we mean by absolutes what are these two extremes and they're then much more general than just what this bunch of people in India happen to have been arguing about at that point. You know, even though that can be informative in particular ways. And similarly, we shouldn't get too bogged down in the particular metaphysical um, assumptions that people argue about today. You know, so so theism and atheism, for example, and is um, you know, particularly in the US, I think is a big thing, isn't it? Um, and um Free will determinism, you know, is is is, uh, assumed a great deal in particularly in moral discussion and legal discussion. You know, the difference between liberal and conservative views is is very often comes down to: do you assume there's some sort of absolute responsibility that people have to measure up to, uh, or do you assume that they're determined in some sense? And um, the experience actually tells us something much more complex and incremental. Um, We have to find some sort of adequate view somewhere in between those absolute assumptions which doesn't assume either of them um and that's i think a quite demanding practice i'd call it the, the practice of agnosticism so, you know so not taking either of those absolute assumptions um has the whole story
0: you think people have to have been on like the the buddha story there is in a way, it's easy to appreciate the problem of absolutization when you see two different types of absolutes vying against each other. But in order to really appreciate that, you have to have had some sympathy for each of those sets of absolutes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, like, is the is the is a trans absolutistic thinking dependent upon people having changed their mind? Like, do you have to have switched from one to the other to really appreciate it? Or can you sort of automatically stand back and go yeah okay absolutism in general including mine is you know like how much is dependent upon having changed your mind
1: oh well it certainly (laughs) it's dependent on that i think (laughs) Um, but yeah i mean that's where i'd see um robert keegan's stages as being so helpful in understanding this this because you can see the the buddha's progression is moving from a the, the interpersonal world uh, where it's just about what the other people in your group expect, and your culture expect, to uh, a universal ideology kind of situation, which is much more stage four. So so uh, it very much looks like uh, we can't really get straight from stage five, stage three to stage five without going through stage four. you know So, so we'll, uh, at least in the vast majority of cases, we're very likely to have to Um, form some sorts of universal ideological ideas about um, how everybody should act and how things generally are, whether they're scientific or religious or or whatever, um, or political. And those will provide some sort of scaffolding whereby we can look back at the ideas that are just limited to a particular group, beliefs that are limited to a particular group, and see that they're not the whole story and, and that can then prepare us for, for the harder task of recognizing that even universal ideologies aren't the whole story, um, and we can even move beyond those as well.
0: There's an odd group of people popping up in my mind, so Robert Keegan, Ken Wilber, Alistair Crowley, Friedrich Nietzsche. These are all prominent voices who suggested that ongoing human development depends on the ability to take new and more perspectives. Uh, that experimental perspective-taking is the evolutionary frontier. And it seems like that practice, if we take that seriously, is severely limited by absolutizing any particular perspective. If we get stuck defending or exaggerating a viewpoint, then our potential ongoing human growth is sabotaged. But then, how do we handle existential hyperbole and the poetic substitution of the part for the whole and... People whose method of exploring seems to be that they take each permission per position and absolutize it, that each, they, you know, they have a kind of dogmatic zeal for every position they take, and then they move somehow to the next one and they hold that with an absolutistic zeal as well, right? Is, is there a problem in going through perspectives that way, or is that just a stylistic option that some people enjoy?
1: I certainly wouldn't see it just as a stylistic option. Um, I mean, people may need to move through those stages to get anywhere further, but to into a middle way position. But uh, yeah, hopefully that's a temporary thing. It's a it's a it's a stage they they need to to pass through. But to what extent that's completely necessary? Well, it's an empirical question, really, which requires more investigation. I think because, you know how whether it's actually possible to skip a stage or whether it's whether it's inevitable that we will think in absolutistic ways before we before we start to overcome that tendency. Um,
0: this is a it's a conundrum for me in relationships because my tendency is when a perspective comes up to sort of go, I'm not quite, I, I'm sort of very explicitly leaving room for other things to come in. But I know people that I trust and care about. And what they seem to do is pick up each perspective and act like it's the only possible position and then put it down and grab another one and put it down and grab another one. At the end Mm -hmm. of many of these, they land in a fairly integrated position. Uh, And to me, it seems almost distressing to watch them go through this process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet Mm -hmm. it's fairly successful for them. So I'm never sure exactly how I feel about it. (laughs)
1: right right okay well it's quite difficult to tell whether someone's going to end up in a more middle way position at the end isn't it yeah (laughs) when they're going through that process so if they're just going to flip endlessly between different absolute perspectives
0: yeah yeah and it's like that's the uh that's the warning sign i get up front and i think it's a reasonable one to have front up front but then after a while you watch some people do seem to cycle through a bunch of absolutes and other people sort of try to be non-absolutistic at each step along the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: here's another thing that occurs to me is that I, it seems like one of the biggest dangers of absolutization is in the, the hidden assumptions we make around thinking we know what words mean and what the basic categories of our discussion are. Like mm. we could lament that people on both sides are too radical, too totalitarian, too absolutistic. But we usually don't critique the idea that we know their sides and we know what those sides are as being a kind of absolutistic assumption. Like mm. how much of the absolutization problem is concealed in the background assumptions we make around what we think are ordinary foreground phenomena? Uh,
1: quite a lot yeah i mean essentialism is is um a very common aspect of absolutizing i think that that we assume that there's there's only one set of correct language and uh which describes uh, how things are or, or how a certain category should be defined and that in turn is dependent on representationalism so so the the assumption that we can Describing language, uh, well, the meaning of a language depends on um, a reality, or at least a hypothetical reality of of some kind. So it's it's that, as I see, is the the more basic problem there, and and metaphysics depends on representationalism. So that's one of the basic problems of of metaphysics and why metaphysics is so unhelpful. Um, Do you think it's ever, do you think absolutization
0: is ever justified as a motivational tool? Like if you have to get people to do something that maybe giving them no additional cognitive options, just like this is the only situation and we all have to deal with it right now. So let's just believe at least for now that it's total. Is that justified or is there always going to be a problem somewhere down the road from doing that?
1: Uh, I think there are situations where it's justified with a context that is not absolutized. So uh, it's it's like kind of the layers of an onion. So so if there's, um. An outer layer which is provisional somewhere, then you can make shift to justify inner layers that are absolutized. But if there is no such context, then you're going to you're just going to assume that that the whole thing is is um, the whole story. Which some at some point you're going to collide with conditions. <laughs> I think. Um, so so um, I mean that's that's where. Uh, Obviously, you get into kind of utilitarian reasoning and the end justifying the means and that kind of stuff. And I think sometimes the end does justify the means, but it's much more likely to work to adopt that kind of strategy if you still have in mind the possibility of other ends uh, or other means. Um, So if you have a wider set of possibilities in mind, um, which you're considering um, while you do that. And that's particularly going to be the case, you know, if you're engaging in, um, you know, immoral, what people would often regard as immoral activities and break common moral rules, you know, like you're killing people and stuff like that. And You've got to be really careful with that context that you've got enough of a context um, to, to, um, to justify it.
0: In the metaphysics of adjacency, which we don't have to call a metaphysics, um, there's no completely closed boundaries. And, and it's based on a kind of gradient, an ontological gradient. So for me, for example, it's not absolutely true that one plus one equals two, but it's maximally true. It's It's more true than any other comparable statement on the subject. Um, But I often have to deal with people who give me a bit of flack on that because there's a lot of people who feel like, sure, when it comes to statements of fact, when it comes to statements of religion, there's a lot of gray area. But when it comes to math and geometry and logic, don't we have some absolute proofs, Robert? (laughs) How, How do you deal with absolutization in those kind of purely syntactical domains? And are those dangerous or not dangerous?
1: Uh, again it depends on the context Uh, so so if you understand uh, maths as a a tool which is in a wider provisional context then fair enough but if you think maths is the whole story then that becomes a problem yes potentially and um, I mean there there is always a a context to put maths in I think Uh, particularly in terms of the meaning of numbers and the way the ways that Numbers depend uh, for their meaning on their relationship with objects in experience. Um, uh, so, I you know, could refer people there to to uh, there's a, a book by Lakoff and Nunez called "Where Mathematics Comes From," which which explains in full how mathematics depends on embodied meaning, how the, the terms used in mathematics depend on that. So, so the the dangers I think arise when people believe that mathematical terms have this representational relationship with realities in the universe, uh, and that takes you to kind of platonic metaphysics, which comes along with the mathematics. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, there's really, there's nothing wrong with mat- mathematics, obviously, when it's contextualized in without that kind of set of assumptions attached to it. What
0: about the argument that... Um when people treat platonic or mathematical truths as transcendental ideals, that they're able to, I mean, that in an embodied practical sense, they get access to a certain contemplative enjoyment of that beauty, which has the ability to transform and change them, but they can only access it by believing in the abstract objective totalization of
1: those truths there's yeah, well, I, wouldn't, go <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wouldn't agree that they have to believe in it um so that's where the distinction between meaning and belief comes in which i think is very important uh, and that relates to our previous discussion in the previous podcast about my book about archetypes so so um i would argue that um people can use absolute concepts of all kinds including you know, mathematical ones or god is another big one in a way that is archetypal which provides a constant renewed source of inspiration through symbols which uh, are associated with that archetypal function but um there's no requirement for, 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 for that meaning to continue to inspire us and for us to keep coming back to it practically and, and draw from it that doesn't require us to believe anything particularly in an absolute sense about that object so the distinction there, for example, between God as an archetypal um, source of inspiration, which is, is just God. You don't have to make any statements about God. I say, well, you don't have to say God exists or God created Jesus as his only begotten son or anything of that kind. You, you just have to, to relate to the concept in a way that that sparks your imagination, or which connects with, with your um, motivations.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the reason it comes up for me is because I run into it a lot. Like um, I I think of quotation marks as amplifiers rather than as subtractors, right? That the intercontextual wiggle room makes it more potent. But when people come to me because I deal with a lot of spiritual communities and they want, well, aren't you really undermining the absolutes. Don't we have to fundamentally connect to the absolute? And aren't you subtracting something with your quotation marks? And I want to say, no, you're, what I think is there's an underlying anxiety there that we're going to lose access to this potency if we stop believing that it truly is an overwhelming fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't think that's the case. I think for a relaxed cognitively active human being you can access that same potency and perhaps even more intensely by not being trapped within the belief structure
1: yeah yeah and that that may be one of the the big things involved in moving on from a kind of ideological mindset um, that that assumes that that we've got to be anchored in some way to to a set of absolute beliefs and, and that must be true Uh, and then justify everything else so so there's a kind of letting go of a certain anxiety there i think that we need to to engage with
0: ideology and belief are kind of murky in some ways like you never know if somebody says they believe jesus is lord do they believe that or do they believe it's important to say that you're not sure (laughs) which one it is Mm -hmm. uh i was reading a thing i think it was in a alexander bard text it was about two two British guys who joined ISIS. Uh, And they ended up being involved in all kinds of atrocities. And there was a British security report that was done that showed that the last things they did was, in England, was order uh, Islam for dummies and the Koran for beginners online. So there's this notion in which like, we act like they were fundamentalist believers, but actually they didn't really know anything about that religion at all. So there's this question about whether, because we often say, well, there's a totalizing belief structure that leads to this bad behavior, but it's also quite possible that there's a totalizing behavior that opportunistically takes advantage of apparent beliefs. So like, how do you think of that uh, interaction?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, the, the beliefs, uh, the, the, actuate people or motivate them may not be the most obvious ones. Um, so, so they could be conceivably, mm-hmm. as in your example, um, involved in an organization that has a strong set of ideological beliefs, uh, but those are not actually the ones that motivate them, but they still behave in a way that's uh, compatible with, with that, that group. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it's just the group norms that really they're absolutizing, just, just, keeping the boss happy for example maybe more have been more important to them than following what the quran says uh, you know so in that case it's what the boss says the quran says that's important rather than what the quran actually says and uh, i mean that that's where um, you know relating absolutization to people who are um, well, have very extreme judgments, shall we say, but are not obviously ideological. So people like Donald Trump, for example, but you have to be more flexible in terms of of trying to understand, well, what is motivating him? What are the absolutes he works on? What are his assumptions? Uh, And those seem to me to be much more about himself and a view about himself than anything else, as far as I can gather, rather than a particular uh, absolutized ideology.
0: Yeah, I think uh, to me that's one of the really valuable things about this book is that it takes a richer look at the problem because there's a there's a tendency in, let's say, modernity of people who think, well, we're rational, informed people and here are all of these absolutistic fanatics who clearly have been given the wrong ideas and now believe them, right? They, they are just hardware programmed by the Koran or the Bible or whatever it is. And you go, well, not necessarily. Like We're kind of being really simplistic about what we think they believe. Now, they could be absolutistic, but like you're saying, it might be at a different layer of their psyche. They might absolutely believe they have to conform to group norms, which includes claiming they believe in a book, which they might not even have read. So I I really appreciate that you're trying to bring a a much more complex, critical lens to the problem than most people do.
1: Good. Yeah.
0: Uh, there's something else that popped up for me, which was, uh, I think it's becoming more common for people to casually use absolutistic signifiers, right? We, we People say literally when they mean metaphorically now. People say 100% when they sort of agree or, you know, people come out of a football game and they claim they gave 110%. Uh, <laughs> totally. So there's this casual, maybe ironic usage of absolutization signifiers. Do you think that means the problem's getting worse? Or do you think that means it's getting better because they're kind of depressurizing it? Is it a good or a bad
1: sign? Casual absolutization. <laughs> sure. I mean, it, it, it could be. Uh, well let's say I, I don't take those terribly seriously um you know they're, they're not necessarily accompanying accompanied by actual absolutization then um you know i'm sure i probably do it sometimes you know so, so the terms absolutely and completely you know i mean i try to avoid it but i guess sometimes i probably somebody says do you agree with that and i say absolutely you know probably off the top <laughs> of my head um and so i'm sure everybody does that because it's part of the the cultural usage of language uh, but what i mean when i say absolutely is i agree with you <laughs> you know um and if you so if you look at the wider context particularly the embodied context of the utterance that somebody's given then uh, yeah you have to judge based on that whether they're mm-hmm. absolutizing or not and the fact they've used absolutizing signifiers as you call them is is not necessarily that relevant um I mean, it, it might be that people take it more casually. Maybe it's a sign of that um, that they don't recognize absolutization as a problem. But you know, that's news, that's not news to me. <laughs> um, that uh, it's it's not you know generally recognized as an issue.
0: Yeah, this actually pertains to the previous point I was making because so much of the critique of absolutes I hear. Is at the level of the symbols that are being exchanged, and not at the level of the the neuropsychological mode of the organism, which is more important and can operate independently of the use of those symbols.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, indeed, yeah. I mean, I've asked you a lot of pretty abstract questions, so I'm <laughs> we're we'll probably drawing near the end in terms of what people can process at one sitting. Uh, but is there anything else about the book that you'd really like to mention in this
1: discussion that I haven't brought up? Okay, well, I just want to make sure people are aware that it's part of a series. here. Yeah, so it's the first volume of the New Middleweight Philosophy Series. Um, so, which is projected to eventually reach nine volumes, but we'll see. Uh, but the probably the key relationship at the beginning of that series is is between the two first volume so so this is kind of the negative bit it's it's trying to alert people to what the problem is whereas um the second volume is called the five principles of middle way philosophy which is coming out in february and that's much more the positive response so so if you f- if you feel that absolutization is a bit of a negative book then that's the that's the balancer that there is a there is a context to it in in the next volume of the series um which does give a lot more kind of practical suggestions as to how to tackle absolutization in practice and how to engage with the
0: issue do you have a sense of what seven more volumes after the next one looks like
1: <laughs> oh yeah i've got a plan yeah yeah um <laughs> i mean this is the result of work i've been doing over more than 20 years so it's it's a lot of the work is done already it's all it's it's developed in various forms and there's a previous self-published version of the of the series but, the, but this is a much more yeah better updated um expanded version of it all right
0: well that's terrific thanks very much Robert and we will be looking forward to talking to you about the next volume <laughs> at some point okay.
1: I'll and, look forward uh, to that
0: too. yeah I just love how uh how deep into all of this you're going <laughs>
1: Great. Well, thanks for your interest anyway. Yeah, cheers, (laughs) man. Okay, thanks.